Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I'm honored to be in dialogue with Chris Webb. He is an independent scholar who has studied and written extensively about the Holocaust. We will be discussing two of his recent books. One is The Sobibor Death Camp, History, Biographies, Remembrance, published in Stuttgart, Germany by Ibedem Verlag, 2017. The other is the Treblinka Death Camp, History, Biographies, Remembrance, published also in Stuttgart by Ibedem Verlag, 2021. These books complement the previous interview that we did together regarding his book on the Belzets Death Camp. Together, these books constitute a trilogy on the Axion Reinhardt camps, which are seminal in the history of the Holocaust. Chris, it is a blessing to be in conversation with you today. Uh, thank you very much, Ari. For completeness, I'm actually going to cover all three Action Reinhardt camps. Okay. Starting with Belzec, then Sobibor, then Treblinka. Uh, I want to complete the whole picture, if I may be so bold. Sure. Okay. So we're going to talk about Action Reinhardt. This was the code name given for the Nazi mass murder program originally of Polish Jewry. This was extended to include other nations occupied by the Nazis, such as the Dutch and the French and the Greek Jews, and and as well as Jews from the Reich. The Action Reinhard program was headed up by Odilo Globocznik, the SS and Politzeifuhrer for the Lublin district. The program commenced with the deportations of Jews from Lublin to Belzec in March 1942. Following his death in Prague, the program was named in honour of Reinhard Heydrich, the head of the Reich Main Security Office. Globocznik was authorised to build three purpose-built death camps in the general government, which is the title for Poland. At a meeting with Himmler and Kruger, who was the higher SS Polizeifuhrer Ost, at Rastenburg on October the 13th, 1941. Three camps that were built were Belzec, which was started in November 1941, Sobibor and Treblinka, both in the spring of 1942. As soon as Tamala, who built the camps, Sobibor and Treblinka, as soon as he'd finished Sobibor, he moved directly on to Treblinka. The leading personalities in Action Reinhardt was Adilo Globocznik, as I've already mentioned, who was born on April the 21st, 1904 in Trieste. A builder by profession, he played a leading role in the annexation of Austria to the Reich 
in March 1938. He was appointed to the post of Gauleiter of Vienna on May the 24th, 1938. But he was dismissed from this post for illegal speculation in foreign exchange. He was pardoned by Himmler and appointed to the post of SS Polizeiführer for the Lublin district on November the 9th, 1939. In Lublin, Domotric was made responsible for action Reinhard and the clearing of Polish peasants from the Zamosh lands. In September 1943, Dobochnik was appointed higher SS Polizeiführer for the Adriatic coastal region. In December 1943, Himmler ordered Dobochnik to provide him with a detailed statement listing the assets and financial achievements of Action Reinhardt. The Watchbook submitted this in January 1944. Key findings were once 178 million Reichsmarks added to the Third, third Reich's offers. And Globochnik asked for medals for his men who'd uh, served in Action Reinhardt, but Himmler didn't give any. Globochnik committed suicide after his capture by British forces on May the 31st, 1945, in Patanion, Austria. The other leading personality, I'm only going to talk about two for the moment. The second one, worthy of mention, is Christian Wirth, born on November the 24th, 1885, in Oberbaltheim, Württemberg. He served in the First World War on the Western Front. He rejoined the police in Stuttgart after the war ended. He became a leading figure in the T4 mass murder programme of mentally ill and disabled people. And he was appointed the Commandant of Belzec just before Christmas 1941. I'll cover it and what happened to him later. But the early days at Belzec, Viet experimented in Belzec with various gassing methods, including the use of a gas van. Eric Fuchs, another T4 member, drove the van. This method was not a success. Construction continued that winter using local Polish tradesmen to build the gas chambers and barracks. The SS staff numbered about 30, mostly recruited from T4. Supplemented by SS volunteers, circa 120 of them, trained at the SS training camp at Trevniki in the Lublin district, and they became known as Trevniki Manor. Among the SS men were Schwartz, Fikes, German, Herring, Dubois, and Unverhaar, and the most notorious Travniki manor in Belzech was Heinrich Schmidt. I will now give you a description of Belzech. Not a large camp, three sides, northwest and east, measured 275 metres, southern side, 265 metres, surrounded by barbed wire and watchtowers. Divided into two camps, Camp 1 included the ramp, where train transports arrived, 
also included the assembly square, undressing barracks, storage, and living quarters for the Jewish workers and the Tabliki Manor. Between camps one and two was the so-called tube, a barbed wire passageway that ran from the undressing barracks to the gas chambers. Camp two, initially there were three gas chambers which used carbon monoxide gas from a tank engine to murder the Jews. Mass graves were also located in this area, along with two barracks for the Jewish workers who serviced the Totenlager, the death camp. The SS staff were housed in two stone houses that belonged to the Polish Railway Company before the war. In the locomotive sheds near the Belzec train station, the clothing of the murdered victims was sorted and stored prior to shipment to the old airfield camp in Lublin. In terms of the timeline, February 1942, trial gassings commenced. March 1942, first deportations from Lublin. During this time, between December, when Wirth was appointed commandant, and March 1942, Wirth perfected the process of mass murder. This included the separation at the ramp of sick and disabled people, children who arrived on their own, Anybody who slowed down the extermination process was picked out and shot in a specially dug pit in Camp 2. June 1942, larger gassing facility built. Now six gas chambers, known as the Hackenholt Stiftung, named after the person who operated the gas chambers. Now with two engines, still carbon monoxide poisoning, was the method of murder. In June 1942, transports from Krakow, Lvov and Lublin continued. Krakow started. Um, that's why they built larger gassing facilities. Viet knew the three gas chambers could not cope with the numbers that came from Krakow and Lvov. August the 1st, 1942, Viet is promoted to inspector of the SS Sonderkommando Action Reinhard by Globocznik. Gottlieb Herring, an old friend of Wirtz from the Stuttgart CID, took his place. In mid-August 1942, famous visit to Belzech by Kurt Gerstein, head of disinfection for the Waffen SS, and, uh, and after the war he produced uh, one of the most famous reports about Belzec. Transports continue up to December 1942, and then gassing ceased. The focus switched then to exhumation of the bodies that had been buried in the mass graves and cremation to eliminate all traces of the crimes the Nazis committed. Once this was completed, the cremation, the structures were dismantled, trees planted over the mass graves, the workers sent to Sobibor death camp where they were murdered on arrival. The camp officially closed on May the 8th, 1943, and the number of 
people transported there was 434,508, confirmed in the Hofler telegram of January 1943. I'll talk a little bit now about the Jewish prisoners of Belzec. Most famous was Rubin, a.k.a. Rudolf Rader. He escaped and published his memoirs, the only memoirs, written memoirs, of a survivor. There weren't many. He was deported from Lvov in August 1942. He escaped in November 1942 when he was sent to Lvov to collect sheet metal. His Chavniki manor guard fell asleep and he left the truck. Another survivor, Chaim Hertzman, escaped from the train taking the Jewish workers to the Sobibor death camp. He was murdered by Polish anti-Semites in Lublin during March 1946. He gave testimony in court, but never published any memoirs. The number of survivors is incredibly low, possibly 10 at the most. And that concludes my bit about Belvich. Okay? Okay. I'm now going to talk about Sobibor. The second AR camp was built at Sobibor, which is located near the town of Vladava in southeastern Poland. In March 1942, a railroad spur was constructed from the main line into the camp. Richard Samala from the Waffen-SS Bauleitung in Zamosh was in charge of construction. The camp dimensions were 400 metres by 600 metres in the shape of a rectangle. The camp was in four distinct areas. The Vorlager, the reception, the Totenlager, death camp, and in the summer of 1943, the Nordlager was added. Originally, three gas chambers using carbon monoxide gasings from a captured tank engine was used. So you see the same, this is why I included Belzec, exactly the same as Belzec. And the camp itself was modelled on Belzec. That's why I wanted to cover Belzec. In terms of the SS garrison, the first commandant was Franz Stangl, an Austrian who had served in the T4 Euthanasia Institute at Hartheim and Bernberg. He was appointed to the post by Globochnik in Lublin in the spring of 1942. The SS Sonderkommando consisted of circa 30 SS men. Most notable were Frenzel, Wagner, Bauer and Belender. These were supplemented by 120 Chavniki manor. Most famous of these was Ivan Demyanyuk. I'm now going to talk about the mass murder process. Transports arrived mostly by train. Some local transports arrived in horse-drawn carts or in lorries. Thomas Blatt, for example, was transported to Sobibor in a lorry. Once unloaded at the ramp, these were the ones that came by train, the deportees were taken to the reception camp where they undressed. From there, they were led through the tube 
a barbed wire passageway that ran to the three gas chambers in the total lager. Carbon monoxide gas from a tank engine was pumped into the chambers to murder the Jews. So exactly the same as Belzec. Mass graves were dug in the Toten Lager and bodies were placed in them. So we'll now go through the timeline of Sobibor. On April the 7th, 1942, first transport from Rezhevitz in the Lublin district went to Sobibor. Stangl departed in late August 1942 to run Treblinka. Franz Karl Reitleitner, an old T4 comrade of his, assumed command. In the autumn of 1942, so again repeated as what happened in Belzech, gas chamber facility was increased to either six or eight chambers. But the same gassing method, e.g. Russian tank engines, carbon monoxide gas, was the agent used. In the summer of 1943, the Nordlager camp was built in the northern area of the camp, which was a storage for captured Russian weapons and ammunition. In July 1943, there was a revolt by the Vold Commando. That was the commando that worked in the forest that took place and a number of Jews escaped. Not many, a handful of Jews escaped. In September 1943, the Germans deported Jewish Soviet prisoners of war from Minsk. Given their military experience, one of the Soviet prisoners of war Sasopracheski led the revolt along with the Jewish camp inmate Jan Feldhendler. Feldhendler, sorry. On October the 14th, 1943, the prisoners revolted and killed 12 SS men and two Chavniki guards. Those murdered included Beckman, Valister, Joseph Wolf, Johann Nyman, Deputy Commandant, and Siegfried Gracious and others, of course. Circa 700 Jews escaped, according to German reports. Large number of the Jews were killed in the forest by either SS men, Ukrainians, or Polish anti-Semites. 83 survived the mass revolt and other individual escapes that took place prior to the revolt. Notable survivors... Pachersky himself, Thomas Blatt, Stanislav Smezner, and Kurt Thomas. Following the revolt, the gas chambers were dismantled. Some of the barracks were not destroyed, but were used by the Baudienst, the German construction service. Inmates from Treblinka were shipped from Sobibor to help dismantle some of the camp structures. A number of SS men from Treblinka were also sent to Sobibor to replace their fallen comrades. On November the 23rd, 1943, Gustav Wagner led the execution of the remaining worker Jews. According to official sources, circa 250,000 Jews were murdered in Sobibor. That completes my 
Talk on seven. We'll now come to the last camp in action, Reinhard, the biggest, which is Treblinka. Treblinka is located 66 miles from Warsaw. It's in an isolated, though uh, inhabited part of the country, in a sandy and forested area, but contained very good rail links. Construction commenced at the start of April 1942, led by Richard Tamala, who had built Sobibor. Some historians claimed that Tamala also built Belzech, but that is unlikely, if not impossible, because Tamala was actually in Russia at that time, November, December 1941, working on the strong points on the east project that Himmler had ordered Globochnik to mastermind. So Tamala was not in Belzec at that time. The camp was 600 metres by 400 metres, divided into two distinct parts. The lower camp, where transports were received, sorting barracks, living quarters for the Jews, Germans and Ukrainians, and the so-called Lazarette. The upper camp, which contained the gas chambers, the mass graves, and living quarters for the Jews who worked in the total lager. Now, the camp was surrounded by barbed wire, camouflaged with pine leaves, so you couldn't see in it. And yes, you could not see inside. So it was well shielded from prying eyes. What I want to say, and what I want to add here, is the total lager in all three camps were completely separated from the other parts of the camp. There was hardly any transfer of personnel, only one, in Treblinka's case, which was Viennik, was allowed to move between the two parts of the camp. In, in both the other camps, well, in all three, once you cross the threshold of the tote lager, you were not allowed back into the other parts of the camp. So what went on in the tote lager was a complete secret from the rest of the camp. And I think it's quite important to say that. In terms of the SS garrison, the first commandant of Treblinka was a Dr. Ernfried Erbil, who was also a member of T4. He was removed by Globochnik in mid-August 1942. This was because Ebel misjudged the capacity of the gas chambers and the whole process broke down. There were corpses all over the camp. Uh, everything was in chaos. Globochnik and Viet were made aware of this travelled to Treblinka in mid-August 1942 and basically sacked Ebel on the spot. Ebel was replaced by Franz Stangl from Sobibor, who we've already spoken about. Viet and Stangl reorganised the camp. They built larger gassing facilities from three chambers to either eight or ten. The Jewish survivors all say that there were 10. The Germans 
claimed that there were eight or even six. Uh, personally, Viennick, who was a, con- a, a master of construction before the war, worked on the ta- worked on the gas chambers. He said there were ten, and I believe him. I think there were ten. Um, Viet also introduced a lazarette, and this was the infirmary. That's the medical German military term for infirmary where people who couldn't walk the process through through the tube quickly enough or disabled people or sick or unaccompanied children were taken to the lazarette, which flew a Red Cross flag where they were shot in the back of the head um, by a small calibre for either rifle or pistol. Circa 30 SS men ran the camp. Same as Belzec, same as Sobibor. These included Kutner, Mietti, Mentz, Hertreiter, and Mattis in terms of the leading personnel of the camp, and Kurt Franz as well. Uh, I'll tell you about Kurt Franz in a minute. They were supplemented by 120 Travniki Manor, same as Belzec, same as Sobibor. Most famous of these were Ivan Marchenko who was known as Ivan the Terrible, who operated the gas chambers and who was never brought to justice after the war. Okay, I will now describe the mass murder process. Transports mostly arrived by train via Malkinia, which was a large station at a junction, uh, originally a border post to what was the Soviet Union. Transports were divided in 20 boxcars at the Treblinka village station and were pushed onto the ramp in Treblinka. Once unloaded, the arrivals were taken to be undressed, women and girls in a barrack, men in the open. The women and girls had their hair shaven and then were hurried through the tube to the gas chambers, followed by the men. Gassing was undertaken using carbon monoxide gas from a Russian tank engine. Three chambers, quite primitive. Gassing took 20 minutes. Corpses were buried in mass graves, but later burnt on what was known as roasts. In terms of the timeline, The first transport from the Warsaw Ghetto arrived in Treblinka on July the 23rd, 1942. The Warsaw transports were then organised on a shuttle basis and deportees were taken to Treblinka. Trains were then emptied and then shuttled back to Warsaw to take the following day's contingent. Transports from Chesterhova, Radom, Kielce, Bialystok, Theresienstadt, and other places followed, including the Reich. Viet and Stengel reorganised the camp in the summer and autumn of 1942. The three gas chambers were replaced by eight or ten, as I've already mentioned, uh, and the Lazarat was, was built to handle those that couldn't go through the tube. The upper camp was screened from the lower camp by means of a huge earthen embankment. 
Also, several key personnel in that summer of 1942 arrived from Belzec. Viet organised a number of SS men from Belzec to go to Treblinka, the most important one being Kurt Franz. Kurt Franz, who was in charge of the Travniki guards in Belzec, was also a member of T4 and had served in a number of T4 euthanasia institutes where he was a cook. Kurt Franz was an extremely brutal, sadistic SS man who constantly maltreated the prisoners. He had with him a huge St. Bernard Cross dog called Barry, which he used to set on the prisoners. He was most feared and he was the most brutal of SS men in Treblinka. And his arrival as deputy commandant was particularly significant. Following Himmler's visit in early 1943, transport from Greece and Macedonia in the spring of 1943 arrived in Treblinka. Himmler was impressed with Treblinka, but was concerned to find that the bodies had been buried and not cremated. And obviously, with the Germans now losing the war, Himmler was anxious to erase all traces of the crimes that had been committed. So he ordered all the corpses to be exhumed and cremated, which became the major focus of Treblinka during 1943. Uh, and they And the corpses were cremated on roasts, which which were rails on a concrete base with corpses piled on top of them and then set alight using petrol. This method, I believe, Viet had witnessed in Helno being done by Paul Blobel, who was in charge of Sonder Action 1005, which was charged with erasing the the, tra the traces of crimes in the East. Rudolf Hurst from Auschwitz also witnessed the same uh, burial procedure and he introduced that in Birkenau as well. The revolt in Treblinka took place on the 2nd of August 1943. A small resistance committee planned the revolt over many months. Main leaders of the revolt were Zoltan Bloch, better known as Zello, Galeski, Camp Elder, Lublin, Cheresky, Kurland, who was the capo in charge of the Lazarette, and Dr. Leichhardt. None of these men actually survived the revolt. Well, Galeski survived the revolt, I tell a lie, but swallowed poison just after escaping. But the rest were killed during the revolt. The revolt was triggered early than planned by a shot, which they saw as a sign, which was going to be a sign, at about five o'clock. But the revolt uh, happened at about, I think it was about half past three. Wooden structures were set on fire. Petrol station was destroyed with a massive explosion. But the upper camp was untouched. So the upper camp with the gas chambers was untouched. Circa 200 Jews escaped and 60 were alive at the end of the war. Those survivors include Wiernik, Willenberg, Tejman 
and Rosenberg. Those men, incidentally, and Rosenberg were somebody that I managed to strike up a friendship with and wrote to for many years. After the revolt, Stengel and the others were sent to northern Italy. Kurt Franz, who I've already described, was appointed as the last commandant of the camp to oversee the camp's liquidation. Transports from Bialystok were the last to be handled at Treblinka on August the 21st, 1943. The gas chambers were dismantled. Most of the buildings were torn down. Lupines were planted over mass graves that had been emptied of all the corpses. The last prisoners were killed and the last transport with material left on November the 17th, 1943. Estimates range over the number of Jews who were murdered in Treblinka. Zabeki, the station master of the Treblinka village station, reckoned that it was over a million, but more conservative estimates range from 700,000 to 900,000. And according to my research, as mentioned in my book, I've estimated that the final figure was 885,000, but one, one will never know. All three Action Reinhard camps destroyed some 1.6 million innocent Jewish men, women and children, as well as several thousand gypsies. It's worth mentioning that this, mur this mass murder, in the case of Belzec, took nine months, where we reckon half a million people were killed. Uh, these camps only ran from March 1942 to November 1943. So they killed 1.6 million people in a relatively short space of time. More than Auschwitz managed to murder, which we think is 1.1 million, and Auschwitz was running for five years. So Action Reinhard deserves, in my opinion, to be discussed more and more known about and more remembered, because in my mind, it was more, even worse than Auschwitz. But all three camps were worse than Auschwitz, in my opinion. Okay. As you closed, you noted that Axion Reinhardt is not sufficiently remembered relative to the ways that Auschwitz is remembered. Why do you believe this to be so? And is there anything that can be done to change this so that right. Axion Reinhardt is remembered more and differently than it actually has been? Okay. I, I think... When, when the Nazis closed the camps, they demolished most of the buildings, most of the structures. Um, and if you go there today, there is virtually nothing to see. The only place where there's really something to see now is Sobibor and, uh, uh, and Belzec, I suppose, where the, where the SS men lived outside of the camp. Uh, and the locomotive sheds were outside of the camp by the station. But they've been burnt down now. Um, so there's nothing to see. 
unlike in Auschwitz, where you can see barracks, you can see ramps, you can see train lines, you can see something. Uh, and certainly in Auschwitz one, for example, you know, you know, nothing was destroyed apart from the gas chambers. So, so, so you've got something a to see if you go there in Auschwitz, and you've got virtually nothing to see in Belzec, Sobibor, and Treblinka. Okay, yeah, there's museums there and things like that, but generally speaking, and you know, there are memorials, but but there's nothing tangible to see from that time. So I think Auschwitz then has something to hold on to, for people to see and for people to relate to. That's why I think Auschwitz is remembered. And same with Majdanek, of course, that's that's also intact. Um, so, so, so there's that. Secondly, as I've said to as I've said already in Belzec, there were less than ten people who escaped and only a few survived. Really a handful of people. Um Sobibor more, there was a mass escape in Sobibor. And in Treblinka there was a mass escape and therefore there were some survivors who were able to tell of their experiences in the camp. That's that, but in Auschwitz, which was a death camp and a concentration camp, there was a lot more survivors. So there's a lot more people to tell the story, and I think that's why Auschwitz is remembered better than the three action Reinhardt camps. What can be done about it is, I guess, you know, doing talks like these and spreading the gospel, so to speak, on action Reinhardt. It's not entirely unknown, you know, it, there, there are conferences about it and various things throughout the years. But compared to Auschwitz, if you ask the ordinary man in the street what, what defines the Holocaust for you, they will say Auschwitz. They won't say Belzec, Sobibor and Treblinka because they don't know about it. So that's my take on it. So my books, hopefully... Uh, add to the people's knowledge. Uh, I've now written, because I've done second editions of my books, and I've now done six of them on Action Reinhardt. The latest one is Sobibor, which is currently being edited. So, you know, I, I, and, and I must also mention in the case of Sobibor, in the last couple of years, there was a book published from Nyman's photographs of Sobibor, uh, which tells us much more about Sobibor than we ever knew before. Photography was forbidden in Action Reinhard camps, but both Johann Nyman at Sobibor and Kurt Franz at Treblinka took, produced a photograph album with photos from the camps, but they were clever is that they made sure that they show nothing incriminating. So there were no pictures of gas chambers. So, you know, they were just some general views, SS men relaxing, um, 
out of the photos, I think you can only see about two or three where there are actually pictures of tunes in the pictures themselves, in some of them. And the same in Treblinka. Treblinka was a bit more incriminating because he took pictures of the um, excavators in the total lager, digging, digging the graves. So, yeah, a little bit more incriminating, but generally not not so much that you could, ah, uh, that points something out there that you could then pin blame on them. Okay? Thank you. What new evidence does your research reveal about Odlo Globochnik? Can you elaborate on some of the new findings about him that your research conveys? Um, Globochnik was... Is, 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 quite a shadowy figure, not particularly well known at the end of the war, but there's been a lot of research done done on him in more recent years. Um, one of the things that, that uh, I managed to uncover uh, is that Globochnik uh, was based in Lublin, but when the Warsaw Ghetto deportation started, I managed to actually track down that he had another office in Warsaw, which was at a place called uh, in Zalajna Street in Warsaw, where he had a, a another headquarters. Whether I actually discovered much more about Grobochnik himself, because I think these figures, he led action Reinhardt, um, his deputy was a man called Hoffler. He's the person who wrote the telegram that listed the number of Jews sent to Belzec, Sobibor and Treblinka. Funnily enough, also included Majdanek in this telegram uh, of Lublin. And Lublin was actually not part of Action Reinhardt. The only part that the Lublin camp, now known as Majdanek, played in action Reinhard, was that the old airfield camp, which is opposite it, is that the clothing was actually sent to the old airfield camp in Lublin to be disinfected and then shipped onto the Reich. But in essence, Majdanek was not, was not classed as part of action Reinhard. Uh, so that's an important bit of research uh, that I've done. Um, yeah, I've, I've uncovered a, a bit more about Globochnik's personal history um, prior to heading up Action Reinhardt. Um, I wouldn't claim that, that my research is novel in that respect. I have done some novel research, which is new, which I will mention is that Rudolf Beckman, who was murdered at Sobibor, for years and years and years, lots of eminent historians have written about Beckman, saying that he was born in Osnabrück. Uh, and with my latest book, I and, uh, and, and a few others, with their help, we discovered that Beckman was not born in Osnabrück, he was born in a place called Burr, which is in Gelsenkirchen, in the Ruhr. And um, so and we were able to find out 
things about him, where he was in T4, where he was buried. We confirm that he was buried in Helm after the revolt. And I'm very proud of that research because that to me has cleared up some unknowns that actually I've been researching for 20 odd years. So I'm very pleased about that. That's in my next book. Sorry. <laughs> next question. What does your research reveal about the controversies surrounding Ivan the Terrible, so-called Ivan the Terrible? Um, oh. The trial of the so-called uh, Ivan the Terrible in Israel in the 1980s uh, aroused considerable controversy. What information is presented in your research that might shed new light on the trial of Ivan Demanyuk right. in right. the 1980s? What does your research say about the quote-unquote okay. real Ivan the Terrible? Um, how does your research contribute to debates surrounding the legacy and controversy of Ivan Demanyuk? Also that, in this that, part that of Ivan the Terrible. That is a great question. Uh, Ivan Demanyuk, uh, well, let's say, let, let's say, the author, the Russians who made information available to the OSI in America, the Russians interviewed, oh, I can't, an untold number of ex Chavniki men who'd served at Treblinka who testified that Ivan the Terrible was a man called Ivan Machenko. And this was known in the 70s, 60s and 70s. It was known that Machenko was Ivan the Terrible. So why uh, the Israelis arrested Ivan Demanyuk as Ivan the Terrible, I will never know, because it was clear as day from all these testimonies that Ivan Marchenko was Ivan the Terrible. And I have about 50 or so testimonies pointing to that fact, that Ivan Demanyuk could never have been Ivan the Terrible because it was Ivan Marchenko, who, who was, a, like Demanyuk, who was a captured Russian prisoner of war, uh, came from the Ukraine. He was married. Uh, he had three children. Um, after the war, uh, these uh, former colleagues of him said that Marchenko had gone to Italy uh, and eventually joined the partisans and was never, ever traced and never, ever brought to justice. But did you know that, believe it or not, in, in Treblinka, there were a number of Ukrainian peasant girls who were employed by the SS doing their laundry and looking after them. Um, even they reported about Ivan Marchenko. So it wasn't just even the Ukrainian Chavniki men who said about Marchenko, but also these girls and women who were employed by the SS also mentioned Ivan Marchenko. So, so there is no controversy because Demanyuk quite clearly was not Ivan the Terrible of Treblinka. And the fact that 
his death sentence was overturned and his appeal was successful proves that point. So there is no debate, there is no controversy. That's that is fact. Uh Demanuel was at Soibor. He had an, a Travniki ID card that said he was at Soibor. But there is ne never any mention, apart from one S one Travniki man said he was at Treblinka, but he's the only one. Well, I can't remember his name now, but only one said he was at Treblinka. Most of the others uh, didn't know him and, and, and just said that Ivan the Terrible was Marchenko. Does that, does that answer your question? Thank you very much. Yes. Speaking of... And I Russian... have, but, but I, I should add, I have, by the way, some personal documents or copies of documents with Marchenko, with where he was born and, and, and his details and whatever. Um, so, you know, I have no doubt in my mind, uh, I have his Travniki, a document for Travniki. So I have no doubt that Marchenko is our Ivan the Terrible. Awful man, absolutely awful man. Sadist, brutal, brutal sadist, drunkard, N nasty piece of work. <laughs> Speaking of Russian prisoners, can, can you tell us about the Troniki Manor, the Red Army prisoners of war who volunteered to serve the SS? What roles did they play in cruelties perpetrated? Can you elaborate? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the Germans selected Russian prisoners of war uh, to serve... to. I mean, they were in, kept in absolutely awful conditions, starvation conditions. And it's no great surprise that a number of them volunteered. Uh, and basically speaking, the Germans could not have achieved what they achieved without the help and the service of these mainly Ukrainian, but not all, but mainly Ukrainian former Red Army soldiers who were trained, who were selected and then trained to serve at the three Action Reinhard camps. Basically, they did normal guard duties. So they guarded the prisoners off the train, off the trains. They guarded the prisoners right through the process, right through the tube to the gas chambers, uh, the Ukrainians were used to force people into the gas chambers. And the Ukrainians then guarded the Jewish prisoners. Um, usually, they were controlled by a German-speaking Volksdeutscher. So, obviously, for, for ease, then, the Germans could talk to the... could command the Volksdeutscher, who obviously then could speak German and Ukrainian, um, to guard the prisoners. So so they were never in great positions of authority, but they just carried out the normal... They manned the guard towers. They patrolled the fences. Um, they looked after... They guarded the work commandos. And, and, and that's what they did. And, and obviously, they were also involved in executions of people. Um but, but at, at, at a basic level, basic military level. And most of them, 
not all of them, but most of them were never brought to justice. So you can tell that there was about 30 in each of the three counts. So that's roughly about 100 individuals. Um, most, Some of them were tried after the war and killed, executed. Some were given prison sentences, but the vast majority were never brought to justice. Does that answer you, that question? Yes, thank you. Can you tell us about Cinti and Roma, victims of Axion Reinhardt? What does your research reveal? Right, okay. Um, <clears throat> in Belzec, prior to the establishment of the death camp, there was a gypsy camp. And gypsies from the general government and the Reich were sent there. And they worked under very difficult conditions, building the so-called Otto Line, which was a defence fortification between the general government, which is Poland, and the Soviet Union. These camps closed down about 18 months before Belzec was opened, and the gypsies there were scattered throughout Poland. I know of no, I, I've, in my research, I found nothing to talk about transports of gypsies arriving at Belzec. There were transports of, there were transports of gypsies, uh, but we're not talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of people here. We're talking about a few thousand were murdered in Treblinka. That we know of. Uh, and, and probably the same in Sobibor, but there was no mass extermination of Sinti Roma uh, in, in in action Reinhard camps, because of course they'd been dispersed anyway uh, in terms of Belzec, um, and there weren't you know there, there wasn't that many there. I mean Belzec has a strong history with Sinti Roma because of the gypsy camp, but that was before Action Reinhard. So Action Reinhard, there were gypsies killed uh, in quite brutal fashion, certainly in Treblinka, and there are survivor testimonies about that, but not many. Okay? Can you, thank you. Can you describe Franz Stangl? What does your research reveal about him? Can you... Describe his psychology and his personality. I can. Franz Stangl was an Austrian. He served in the police. He then served in T4, mainly uh, as an administrative officer. Um, and that was his great forte. His, he, he had a great skill at planning and organisation. Uh, and certainly in T4 and in Action Reinhard, there is no evidence or no testimony that suggests that he ever physically hurt anybody. So he was, if you like, the typical desk-bound murderer. Stangl was aloof, kept himself to himself, didn't get involved with the prisoners, didn't get involved in any brutality. One, one could say, why should he, if you like? He had other people around him to do that. So Stangl was aloof, 
sophisticated, clever, um, ruthless, and, and ambitious, but basically was a very, very separated individual. He used to watch what was going on. He didn't comment on, on anything. He didn't shout at people. He was very calm. He was very quiet. Uh, I, 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 and if you like, he was the perfect foil to somebody like Christian Viet. Christian Viet was 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 awful. Was a brutal sadist. But Stangle was clever enough to work his way round Viet. Implemented what he said, but kept himself to himself. Does that help? Sure. Can you yeah, tell us yeah. about Can you tell us about Franz Stangle's wife Teresa? What was her attitude toward her husband Franz and his conduct? Um, well, there is a famous story that when she went out in June 1942 to visit Stangle whilst he was commandant of Sobibor, and he found and she found out what was going on in Sobibor by one of the SS men. They were staying at a fish hatchery. Uh, and an SS man popped along to get some fish, uh, and he became very maudlin, and he told Stangle's wife what they were doing in Sobibor, which was murdering Jews uh, in, you know, astronomical numbers. And she was absolutely, so she said, so she claimed in Gitta Sereni's book, which is well worth a read, Into That Darkness, that, that she was livid with him. But he convinced her, showing what a good liar he was, he convinced her that he was in charge of police matters and he was in charge of construction, but he had nothing to do with the murder of the Jews, which he blamed on Christian Viet. So, yeah, she 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 knew, and I think she turned a bit of a blind eye, to be honest, um, whether she really believed that he was wasn't guilty of these things or not. I don't know. I think she probably did. I think wise now. Can you comment on the post-war trials of individual perpetrators involved in Treblinka's and Sobibor's atrocities? For example, um, can you comment on the trials of Franz Stangl in Dusseldorf, Germany in 1970 and Fedor Fedorenko in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1978? Uh, mm. Likewise, can you comment on the 1965 trial of the 12 SS well, men who served in Sobibor? Yeah, okay. Let, let, let's start at the, at the beginning then. Sure. In, in Belzec, bearing in mind that half a million people were killed, only one man, Joseph Oberhauser, who was in charge of the construction of the camp and was uh, an adjutant to... Uh, Viet, only one man, Oberhauser, was tried in Munich in the early 1960s for what happened at Belzec. And the other SS men at pre-trial hearings, about half a dozen of them or so, um, claimed that they were only following orders and that they were terrified of their lives, that Viet would kill them uh, if they didn't do what they did at Belzec. And the judges accepted that. 
And the only person they tried was Overhauser. And I think he got something like four and a half years in prison. That was it for Bell's Edge. Quite a number of those that were at Bell's Edge also served at Sobibor. And they were arrested as soon as they came out of uh, the Bell's Edge proceedings and were put in trial in Hagen during 1965 and 1966. Uh, and a couple of them got life. Eric Bauer and Carl Frenzel got life in prison. A number of the others got some minor sentences, and quite a number of them were acquitted. Uh, during the same period, 65-66, there was a trial of Treblinka guards, and Kurt Franz and Heinrich Mathis were given life imprisonment. Quite a number of them were acquitted, and... Generally speaking, they were not given high sentences or harsh sentences at all. I'm just trying to find if I've got a, a summary. I've got a summary in my Sobibor book, which is quite helpful. I might not have one in there. Um, but bear with me. Now, we got, we got, we're looking after my granddaughter today, so I think she's crying. Um, yeah, let's have a look. All right, right, I'll do this the hard way. I'll go through the perpetrators and I'll tell you. Right, first of all, most mo most of the high-ranking people in in Action Reinhard. So we'll start off with Dobochnik, as I've told you, already committed suicide. Hoffler, Dobochnik's deputy, committed suicide in 1962 in Vienna prison. Mickelson was brought to trial. Uh, he got 12 years imprisonment. Tamala was executed by the Russians. Ebel committed suicide. Viet was killed by partisans on May the 26th, 1944, just outside Trieste. Stengel was sentenced to life imprisonment in Dusseldorf in the second Treblinka trial. Kurt Herbert Franz was sentenced to life imprisonment in the first Treblinka trial. And bear with me. Right, Fuchs was sentenced to four years for being an accessory to murder. Fuchs served at Belzec, Sobibor and Treblinka. Grossman, Treblinka, never brought to trial. Hackenholt, never found. Hertzreiter, Hertzreiter was sentenced to life imprisonment. Horn, he was acquitted. Otto Horn was acquitted. Kuttner, big figure in Treblinka, died before the trial. Erwin Lambert, who built the gas chambers at Treblinka, and Sobibor. He got four years imprisonment. Mathis got life imprisonment. He was head of the totem lager. Mentz was sentenced to life imprisonment. Mietti, who was in charge of the Lazarette, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. Munzberger, who looked after the gas chambers, he got 12 years. Room got at Franz Room, Treblinka, three years. Stardi, who was an administrative officer in Treblinka. He was sentenced to seven years. Sukamel, six years. That's it. So you see there that the vast majority were not brought to trial or received very, very, very light sentences. I've been in dialogue today with Chris Webb. We've been discussing two of his recent books, The Sobibor Death Camp, History Biographies Remembrance, published in Stuttgart 
by Ibden Verlag 2017, and the Treblinka Death Camp History Biographies Remembrance, also published by Ibden Verlag 2021. Chris, it has been a blessing and an honor to learn from you. Thank you. You're very welcome. 